This week, the lengths researchers went to to explore our ancestors' eating habits. I can't say that I'm a devotee of raw goat. It was pretty um, uh, unpalatable, but one does what one can for science. And the frontiers of CRISPR, the cutting edge of the gene cutting technique. A lot of the stories that we've written over the past years really dealt with the sort of sexier applications of CRISPR-Cas9 for things like human gene therapy. But right now, it's being used in research labs extensively for a whole host of other things. Plus, treating cataracts using the eye's own stem cells. This is The Nature Podcast for March the 10th, 2016. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Charlotte Stoddart. First this week, a nice loud audio welcome back to Charlotte, who's back from maternity leave and already finding the office more relaxing and with fewer immediate deadlines. Oh, thanks, Adam. Nice to be here. It's almost lunchtime at Nature Towers, but I don't fancy what's on the menu for our first interview. If you ever want to know how awful raw goat meat tastes, ask Dan Lieberman. The Harvard paleoanthropologist ate raw goat, bison and even kangaroo in an attempt to get into the minds, or rather the mouths, of ancient human relatives. The archaeological record shows that hominins began hunting and eating meat more than three million years ago. Yet cooking probably wasn't invented until less than one million years ago. So, to get an idea of how ancient hominins managed a diet of raw meats and plants for so long, Lieberman and colleague Katie Zink studied how volunteers, including themselves, handled raw and cooked foods. Nature reporter Ewan Calloway chewed the fat with Dan Lieberman. If I were to give you a piece of meat um, versus a piece of carrot... um, you know, you could chew both. Uh, the carrot would be a lot easier to chew than the meat. And in fact, if I gave you raw meat that wasn't sort of corn-fed beef, but instead game, uh, you would chew and chew and chew and chew and chew and chew and keep chewing, and your teeth actually would be unable to break it down. Uh, human teeth are very poorly adapted to breaking down meat into small particles that we can digest easily. Except for the odd, you know, carpaccio or steak tartare. I mean, we, we cook our meat, so that, that, that's how we make it easier to digest. Surely a- ancient humans did the same, right? So cooking is extremely important in carnivory for us, but there's a, a vigorous debate going on about how and when uh, humans started to cook. So the evidence that we have uh, from the archaeological record is that cooking did not become common until pretty recently, until about four or 500,000 years ago, maybe two million years after we started eat, eating meat on a regular basis. So that would have posed fascinating challenges to uh, early hominins who, with the kinds of teeth that we had, uh, want, wanted to have meat with their potatoes. We, we might not have had cooking, but, but humans had stone tools, right? That's right. And we've been doing a lot of research in the lab on, on the biomechanics of chewing. And, and so we, we thought, well, let's just find out just how hard it is uh, to chew and uh, different kinds of food. And so we developed a number of techniques using uh, electromyography, so putting electrodes in people's muscles and you know, various other methods. The Human Subjects Research Board at Harvard was very concerned that we'd get people sick if we fed them raw meat. So we had to have essentially sushi-quality meat. So we, we raised basically super sterile goats that, you know, they were fed antibiotics and they were butchered in, in sort of surgically sterile techniques. And then we gave meat as well as various uh, tubers to subjects and then asked people to chew meat that was cut up um, or not cut up and roasted or, and pounded. And, you know, basically we tried every Paleolithic technique we could. 
Did you try eating any of these raw meats yourself? <laughs> yeah, I, I was a practice subject. So, because, uh, you know, we always test out any experiment on each other. And uh, I have to say, I, I ate all these raw meats that we were trying, kangaroo and bison. And I can't say that I'm a devotee of raw goat. It's pretty, it was pretty um, uh, unpalatable. But, uh, you know, one does what one can for science. And, uh, uh, and it's certainly kind of an amusing situation to be, you know, strapped up in a, you know, you've got electrodes all over your face and camera recording you and, and, um, <laughs> and you know, it takes a little, it takes a few minutes to kind of adjust to this sort of strange situation. How did the the results shake out? Processing the the meats and tubers with knives or with these tools? Uh, we thought that bashing the meat would have a really big effect, and what we found was that actually tenderizing meat, um, which makes it very pleasant uh, to eat um, and is an important cooking technique, actually doesn't make it that much easier to chew uh, because meat is a very ductile material. You have to use your teeth like scissors and. If you look at your molars, they're very unscissor-like indeed. Uh, but cutting the meat had massive effects, you know, decreased the amount of force that, um, that people had to use. You know, if you chew a piece of goat uh, that, we, that we had given you, you know, you'd chew and chew and chew and chew, and eventually you'd spit out a piece that was essentially that same piece of goat. When we used stone tools to cut it up, not, 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 not mincing it into tiny little bits, but, you know, just a kind of you know, normal sort of bite-sized bits, your ability to, to break that food down was more than doubled. The important you know, take-home message is that if you were to incorporate meat into your diet and use stone tools, you would chew a lot less, millions of chews less per year, and you would use a lot less force when you chewed. And in fact, it's so effective that you don't actually have to invoke cooking in order to explain some of the changes that we see in anatomy uh, that occur around this time. Food for thought. Um, you must get asked about paleo diets a lot. <laughs> All the time. You know, just because our ancestors ate something doesn't mean that's what we should do. And, or just because they didn't eat something doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. I mean, the world is much more complicated than that. The fact that meat played an important role in human evolution doesn't mean we should all go out and eat lots of steaks uh, tonight. But, um, you know, meat has costs and it also has benefits, uh, particularly uh, if you think about it from an ecological standpoint. Uh, I actually eat very little meat, but uh, that has nothing to do with uh, uh, my evolutionary proclivities or interests. That was Ewan Calloway with Goat Sushi, courtesy of Dan Lieberman. Coming up in the research highlights, the worst drought for 900 years in the Middle East, and fungal frogs sing more. But first, reporter Heidi Ledford is one of several CRISPR experts on nature staff. And on Noah's recent trip to Boston, he dropped into the office to talk to her about a feature she's written about the frontiers of the technique. So in this feature that we wrote, we wanted to um, take a little bit of a step away from a lot of the stories that we've written over the past year. So a lot of those stories really dealt with the sort of sexier applications of CRISPR-Cas9 for things like human gene therapy, for editing human genomes, very controversial, for uh, generating new you know, genetically modified crops or, or animals for food. Um, and we wanted to say, well, you know, all of this may be, but right now it's being used in research labs extensively for a whole host of other things. Let's have a quick remedial CRISPR class. Remind me, how does it work? Well, CRISPR is basically two components. One component is the Cas9 protein, and that acts, you know, people like to say it acts as a pair of molecular scissors. It comes in and it cuts the DNA. And the thing that makes CRISPR-Cas9 so powerful is, is that you can guide that Cas9 to a specific site in the genome using a, a little strand of RNA. 
So that strand of RNA matches, you know, corresponds to the site that you want to target and you want to cut. And from there, the cell takes over. The cell has a DNA repair, has several DNA repair pathways for that matter. And the one that most commonly comes in and stitches the two ends back together tends to make mistakes. And if you make a mistake in the middle of a gene that codes for a protein, a lot of times you end up just not getting the protein. So it's a way of eliminating that protein, which can be a way of figuring out, you know, if you're a researcher and you want to figure out what that protein does, a lot of times you try to get rid of it and then see what happens to your cell. What's different? You know, if it doesn't do something anymore, that protein must have been involved in that particular pathway. So that's one thing you can do with it. Now, another trick, which is a lot less efficient and can be quite difficult, but is still possible, um, is to use CRISPR-Cas9 to, to insert a new bit of DNA. And that relies on another DNA repair pathway. It doesn't happen as often. But if you provide a template, um, that DNA repair pathway can stitch in that new template to the spot that you cut. And now you've made a true edit to the genome. You've been able to change the sequence of the genome to what you want it to be. So CRISPR-Cas9 is able to cut DNA in specific places. In rarer occasions, it can insert things. But there's more that CRISPR-Cas9 can do in research. That's right. So some very clever people, I think, from the moment that they found out that you could, you know, guide Cas9 to a specific site in the genome, the first thing they thought of doing was, well, let's try to break the scissors. You know, let's try to, to make it so that you can target Cas9 to a site in the genome, but it's not necessarily going to cut the DNA when it gets there. Uh, so they did that, and then they started sticking all sorts of other bits of proteins onto the Cas9. So now it becomes a shuttle. You know, you, you can tether on a protein maybe that activates gene expression. You, you stick it onto Cas9, you, you send it, you use your guide RNA to send it to a specific gene, and now you found a way to very specifically activate uh, the expression of that particular gene. And what kind of thing can that allow us to do? That specific example in terms of gene activation can allow you to study the function of that gene. So you can, you can target something to that gene to switch it on, you could target something to that gene to switch it off, and then you can study what happens to the cell when you do either of those two things. It tells you something about the gene function. But there are lots of things you can stick onto Cas9. And um, one of the most exciting applications of this, particularly for basic research, is, is to use it to study what's called epigenetics. Epigenetics is kind of the constellation of chemical modifications to DNA uh, and to some of the proteins that the DNA is associated with that people believe can have a very strong impact on gene expression. But the field has always struggled because they, they haven't had a way to really test the function of, say, a specific modification in a specific site. And that's what CRISPR-Cas9 can bring to the party. That's right. That's right. So now you have a way to tether on, say, an enzyme that adds a methyl group to a part of the DNA. And you send it to one spot, you add that methyl group, and then you see what happens. Even though we've spent a lot of time in nature reporting on and in the media in general hearing about the possibility for CRISPR to edit genomes, edit human genomes, all these controversial things. What do you think the biggest impact CRISPR is going to have, is going to be? Are these other potential impacts that we may not have heard so much about going to be more relevant to the, to the scientific community? That's hard to say, because when you talk about, you know, editing the human germline, I think that's, pretty, that's a pretty <laughs> impactful uh, development, depending on how widely it, it ends up being deployed. But 
we can say that the more immediate impact is really on research. And it's on these things, you know, some of these techniques that we've talked about here. I mean, you know, being able to modify the expression of genes in a, in a very quick and easy and targeted way. People are using that for, for all kinds of different genetic screens, for, for screening for um, potentially new drugs. Um, they're learning more about basic cellular pathways and development. And all of these things are going on right now. Um, I think a lot of the, the things that we have been reporting on are important, and I'm, you know, I'm glad that I've been able to report on those and learn about them, but they, a lot of, quite a few of them are still off in the future. And how widely is CRISPR-Cas9 being used already today? From what I can tell quite, quite widely, judging from the number of readers we have for our CRISPR stories, there's a lot of interest in it. For example, there's a company called AdGene, and uh, it supplies some of the molecular tools for, for experiments like uh, experiments that would involve CRISPR-Cas9. Um, they have, since 2013, shipped out over 60,000 different uh, shipments of CRISPR-Cas9 reagents to researchers in 83 different countries. Um, I think they're saying it now comprises about 17% of, of the volume of, of tools that they ship out. And they say that their website, their CRISPR-Cas9 website, which serves as a resource for a lot of, of researchers, has gotten over a million hits uh, just in 2015. That was Heidi Ledford talking to Noah. More on CRISPR in a special package of articles in Nature. Check out nature.com forward slash CRISPR. That's C-R-I-S-P-R. Still to come, treating eye disorders with the eye's own stem cells. That's after the research highlights with Kerry Smith. A fungal disease is making tree frogs cry out for a mate. The fungus is threatening amphibians worldwide, but researchers also found that it can change animals' behaviour. Male Japanese tree frogs normally sound like this. But infected males sound more like this longer and more rapid than their healthy friends. Longer calls are better at attracting mates, so this could be the fungus finding a way to spread. On the other hand, infected males could be keener to reproduce due to their shortened lifespans. Find out more in Biology Letters. In 2012, the Middle East finally came out of a 15-year drought. That drought was the driest period in 900 years, finds a new study. A team looked at tree ring patterns from the year 1100 to the present day across the Mediterranean and the Middle East. There have been summer droughts in the past that mirror some that happen today, but the long Middle Eastern drought recently was a real outlier. Climate change has likely contributed and will probably increase the risk of drought further. The authors say that could lead to more political instability in the area. The report is in the Journal of Geophysical Research, Atmospheres. doctor specialising in eye disorders, Kang Zhang has done his fair share of cataract operations. Cataracts are a clouding of the lens which obscures vision. Cataract surgery cuts out the cloudy part and replaces it with a plastic lens. Zhang noticed something odd happening after some surgeries. The lens would start to grow back around the injury. Not in a useful way, the growing cells would have to be lasered off as they obscured vision. But it made him think, could the lens regenerate itself under the right conditions? The answer is yes, because there's a population of stem cells that live in the lens. 
and Zhang and his team report a method for coaxing these stem cells into forming a new lens. It works in animal models and in infants born with cataracts. Kerry found out more from Kang Zhang. We are turning on the dormant lens stem cells such that it will regenerate entirely functional lens. So in these older patients you were seeing, you would take the cataract out and then you would see these little bits of the lens regenerate and they were in your way in that case. But it did make you think, oh, the lens does appear to be able to regenerate. You know, how could we use that for therapy? Yes. Then we ask the question, what are the cells inside the lens that can regenerate after cataract surgery? And uh, for this, we turn to animal models, first in mouse where we use genetic manipulation to trace the lens stem cells, indicating those cells are the cells that uh, give rise to entire lens. And then how did you translate that? Because you've also demonstrated in human infants that this technique has potential. Yes, after we showed lens regeneration in three animal models, then we went on to devise a method of surgery such that it will take out the cataract so you'll form the proper environment to reactivate endogenous lens stem cell, meaning the patient's own stem cell. So you could show then in your animal models and also in a human population with cataracts that we can be prompted to grow new lenses that actually work. How long does it take to regenerate the lens? In mouse, it's actually quite fast. It's about a month or two. Rabbits, about two to three months. Monkeys, six months. And humans, six months to eight months. And you've already seen you know, you've got to the end of the trial and you've seen that these infants after eight months have much better vision than they would otherwise have done. In the case of human congenital cataracts, obviously by definition, those babies were born with uh, very white cataracts. They will not be able to see. And after minimal invasive cataract surgery, all of the infants can regenerate a functional lens. Do they have normal vision? They have normal vision. The infants gain enough refractive power to to see well. It must be amazing to see the product of that, to have the kids back in eight months later and be able to watch them looking at things. It, it was a quite a, a rewarding um, experience for us, of course. With By doing this, we think we have unlocked a very different way of uh, thinking about stem cell and uh, regenerative medicine. Because previously, when think about regenerative medicine, people naturally came to mind, think about uh, embryonic stem cell or inducible polypotent stem cell. Our approach conceptually differs from the previous approach in that it harnesses one's own stem cell and uses its power to regenerate the entire tissue or organ. Imagine if we can do this for other tissue organs, such as pancreas for diabetes, or parts of brain for neurodegenerative diseases, or part of the cardiac tissue post-myocardial infarction or heart attack. I'm sure the world will be very different. And do you think that as well as working on infant cataracts, you could get this to work on cataracts in, in later life? We think the answer is yes. This obviously has a lot of implications because... By regenerating a new lens, one would likely to restore a combinative power to the lens. Therefore, people would not have to use reading glasses to be able to see clearly. So you could correct other (laughs) problems as well as the cataracts. You could make people's vision even better than it was before. 
Yes, I think it's one of the greatest potential to apply this to adult cataract surgery is to be able to give back an older person its ability to read as well as seeing the distance. How long will it be until it's a standard procedure? Because this is only involving a modification of cataract surgery procedure, I would think it's going to be relatively straightforward. So I would um, think um, it, will, it will actually catch up very quickly. That was Kang Zhang of the University of California, San Diego. Zhang's approach, of course, relies on native stem cells in the eye. But there's another report in this week's Nature from a group who've used induced stem cells to make a mini eye in a dish with lens cells and retina cells. Find both those papers at nature.com forward slash nature. Finally this week, it's time for the news chat and joining me in the studio is Richard Van Norden. Over the past few months, there's been a lot of discussion linking the Zika virus to the condition microcephaly. First, could you tell us what the condition microcephaly involves? So microcephaly is essentially when a baby is born with a very shrunken head and a shrunken brain, uh, can go on to cause problems later in life for that child. And as you say, Zika virus, which has been sweeping across the Americas, largely actually asymptomatic in most people, but Brazil raised the alert last October that it had seen an apparent surge of children born with microcephaly, apparently in regions where the Zika virus had struck pregnant women. Now, ever since then, we've really been uh, wondering what actually is the magnitude of the link between this virus and microcephaly? What dangers does it really pose to pregnant women? And of course, the World Health Organization has issued an alert just about the connection of this virus to that congenital birth disorder. Why has it been so hard to establish what the nature of the link is between microcephaly and the Zika virus? By the time Brazil figured out what was going on, many people had already been infected with Zika. So it's been very hard to tease out the connection of the virus to the birth disorders. Brazil has reported thousands of cases of microcephaly. Um, It's very clear that some of these are an overestimate, uh, either because mild cases that previously existed were never really noticed and now everything's being reported, or because many of the cases have already been dismissed as, as not actually microcephaly, just a baby with a small head and Okay, that sounds a bit flippant, but there's a very sort of wide spread of diagnoses for microcephaly. The other issue is it's hard to be sure that the Zika virus itself is is causing this. There might be some other factor involved. There are many other possible causes of microcephaly, um, including infections like rubella. So it's not being clear what's going on. That said, there is a very clear clinical connection in some cases. Uh, babies born with microcephaly, very severe Uh, microcephaly and other nervous system disorders and Zika being present. So I don't think it's really clinically in doubt that there is a link, but the magnitude of that link, the risk is still unknown. There was some suspicion that we'd begin to see a surge in microcephaly in other countries in the Americas, and that's actually what the news that we broke last week involved. Nature learned that Colombia has seen its first birth defects linked to Zika virus. This is really important because Colombia, outside of Brazil, is the country that's been hit hardest by Zika. Researchers there have been waiting to see if the country will see the birth defects of the magnitude of the kind that Brazil reported. Now, also in Colombia, the first cases were detected in September, giving researchers plenty of time to set up very detailed monitoring programs uh, for thousands of pregnant women 
and essentially to quantify what risk Zika poses to the fetus. Now, what we're seeing here is the very first birth defects. The researcher we talked to, Alfonso Rodriguez Morales, who chairs a network of public health researchers that made these diagnoses, he says that these are probably the first of what we'll expect to see on two or three months' time, um, a surge in these birth defects. The good news maybe from Colombia is that public health officials think that they may not see as many uh, birth defects as they had previously predicted. We're talking about maybe 500, which is a lot, but maybe not as bad as, as thousands as we might have thought. Would new information like this help better inform the response we make to the Zika virus? Essentially, the response is try and control the mosquitoes that spread the virus. And it will be very good to know the magnitude of the link. But I don't think that that's going to change the urgency of the need to control mosquitoes. So moving on to our second story now. Last week, there was an open hardware meeting at CERN, which raises the question for me, what is open hardware? Yeah, it's kind of a, a well-kept secret, which it, which it really shouldn't be. It's ironic because open hardware is um, all about enthusiasts who are making low-cost hardware lab equipment, uh, PCR machines, fluorescent microscopes, uh, using 3D printers and laser cutters, and they are inventing low-cost designs. But the open part of it is you can download the instructions, the blueprints, you can copy, adapt, share, do whatever you like. It's a bit like open software in computer science, but it's open hardware. What's the point in this? I mean, can't you just buy all these things already? The idea is that just as open software has accelerated computer science because everyone can build on everyone else's work, you get hundreds, thousands of people critiquing one piece of code. So if uh, hardware was open, you could very rapidly improve and adapt um, equipment. So it's already, according to its proponents, much lower cost than a proprietary piece of kit. You know, we're, we're talking about 1% to 10% of the cost of a, an off-the-shelf piece of kit. And it can be customised, adapted, improved uh, by anyone uh, who wants to have a go. It still seems like it's something of an obscure idea. What, what are the obstacles to this actually arriving in labs on a regular basis? There's a feeling that, well, is this really as high quality as something you'd buy off the shelf? And it's not just high quality, but is it standardised? Is it if, if a thing to measure current says it's measured an amp, has it really measured an amp if it's some DIY piece of kit? So what's really needed is documentation, standards that accompanies designs and explains and calibrates it and gives confidence that, yes, this is something you can build and you can adopt this and it will work just as well and be less expensive. I feel like if you want to go and do an experiment, you kind of just want to get on with it. You don't want to have to build all your equipment before you start. Are there places where it's already being used and being found to be useful? There are real successes, partly in schools and for citizen science, but also just simply where researchers don't have enough money to buy the equipment. And that's in the developing world. So as far back as 2009, a microbiologist from Yogyakarta, Indonesia, called Irfan Prijambada, he was able to equip his lab with microscopes and tissue culture hoods for 10% of their commercial price. You know, if you're motivated to do it, it is there. But I think the community needs to sort of graduate from enthusiasts to convincing everyone that these things are really easy to make and are there for them. Richard, thanks a lot for joining us. Find those stories and others, of course, at nature.com forward slash news. That's it for this week. Next time, what's up with China's emissions records? Adam goes in hot pursuit. 
I'm Charlotte Stoddart. And I'm Adam Levy. Listener.